Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm once again speaking with Frank McIndoe. We talked to Frank once again about his management and ongoing outlook for the Coda Enduring Equities portfolio, a portfolio of ASX-listed shares that he manages. The performance of this fund's been roughly around 14% compound annual growth rate for around the last 15 years. It's with that lens that we lean on Frank to give us some insight to these times which many people are struggling to see a clear outlook. We talk about how Frank's thinking about companies that had to deal with COVID and rising interest rate environment. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it specific or general advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Please do keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Frank McIndoe, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Good to be here. Frank, I apologise. We had a few technical problems, but I think we're there now. Uh, joining you in Melbourne. That's great. Frank, perhaps you can tell us, since we last met, which I think is about six months ago, talking about the Coda Enduring Equities portfolio that you manage um, of Australian equities, how are, how are things going? Well, look, it, you know, it continues to be very difficult period, I think, for for investments generally. I mean, there's always uncertainty, but, you know, we've got uh, the end of a sort of, whatever it was, 40-year period of falling interest rates. We've got the end of, um, what was it, 30 years pretty much of low inflation. We've had the pandemic, which has produced all sorts of you know massive cyclical upswings and downswings and compounded sometimes by very extreme government behavior so it's it's been a very uncertain period and all of those things that i've just listed are still working their way through the system we're nowhere near what i would regard as you know some sort of equilibrium uh, and who knows, maybe we won't get there for, for some years yet. You know, we've got the fastest ever Reserve Bank rate rises, um, much faster than we've ever seen before, and that's still working its way through. I mean, that the, typically operates with a sort of a lag of, you know, of the order of nine months, and, you know, we're, we're still, you know, going to be feeling the effects of, the first ones, you know, we've still got plenty of those to come through, let alone what might happen next next month, this month as well. So it's tough. So I think if we were, we were just talking about keep and uh, the, the, the last six months actually looks pretty good. The last two years still look a little bit anemic. Was the number around 8% for the last six months? Um, the last six, that's right, 8 or 9%, which is below the, the index, but certainly not a disaster by, by any measure. Um, well, I think it was Warren Buffett who said when someone said he'd underperformed the index over five years or something, he said something to the words of, you know, 15% failure, I'm happy to fail. Yeah, well, 
No, that is true, but um, you know you can't help comparing yourself to the index. So you know if you're not doing better than the index, you you want to do better. And what sort of companies are you liking and not liking in this type of environment, given those anomalies that are in the market at the moment that you, you spoke about, that nothing is in equilibrium? Well, I mean, it hasn't really, it hasn't changed uh, in the sense that what I want is companies that are growing faster than the economy on a long-term basis, just because I think, you know, if things are growing faster than the economy, you, you've sort of got time on your side. You want things ideally with, that aren't particularly capital heavy, with some exceptions, but generally you don't want them to be very capital in intensive. Um, you want them to have some sort of unfair advantage, which could be through intellectual property, it could be through scale, could be through culture. Um, and you want them to acquire them when they're at least fairly priced. But um, I never really know what's going to happen in the short term. I don't know if anybody does, but I certainly don't. So really I try to find things where I think on a five-year view they're going to do better than the average company and they're going to do better than the economy. So the fact that I don't know what's going to happen in the next year or two is actually not relevant. As long as I can be right about the five-year, then over time, you know, I'll win. It'll take care of itself. Yeah. Still no banks? No, look, and I, you know, my previous life as a finance lawyer, you know, half my clients were banks. Um, and I think it's a great pity the way both the international and the local regulatory regime has worked is such that they're more and more constrained uh, in what they can do. Um, you know, at CODA we're able to take advantage of that. A lot of the, the best funds we see are those where they're going into a niche which for regulatory reasons it no longer works for the banks because they can't make a proper return on equity. But what that means is the banks are just getting in narrower and narrower fields. I mean, they're you know, mainly mortgage lending. Mm -hmm. um, but even within that, it's narrower and narrower scope within the mortgage lending and there are all sorts of irrational uh, restraints on them uh, in refinancing, for example, at the moment, it's very difficult for them to refinance people who had a 3% buffer when interest rates were... Uh, 1% or 2%. Were 2%. Yep. So they've now they've used up their buffer and they can't be refinanced by the bank because there isn't another 3% buffer. So that's just an example. So I think it's a great pity. I mean, I think Australian banks, I mean, historically have been some of the better run banks in the world, but they're just more and more constrained, so why would you be there? And, and Frank, uh, some stock-specific areas where you think you've really got it right and you're happy um, at the moment, what, what would some of the companies that you feel really good about at the moment in the portfolio? Well, the ones I probably feel best about at the moment are some of the ones that have given pain in the last, through COVID. So things like healthcare, mm -hmm. 
um, where, you know, just rationally, as the world gets wealthier, one of the things you spend more money on is healthcare. As the world ages, whether you like it or not, you spend more on healthcare. Mm -hmm. But obviously, COVID um, made life very difficult for them because operating theatres were shut, or um, uh, you know, blood collections stopped. Um, so those companies, you know, for example, Cochlear, CSL, ResMed, uh, generally had a tough COVID period. But it's not as if they've been idle. They've been building their businesses. And I think a combination of a return to, uh, you know, a new normal in terms of healthcare anyway, should see them do extremely well. And, and Frank, the, the types of companies you're trying to avoid, I know you've articulated the ones where you can get it right, but are there any types of companies at the moment you see people rushing in to buy? I know we've seen a huge switch over the last 12 months from these revenue multiple technology going to be the next big thing back to value. Um, but are there any areas of the market that you see people getting particularly excited about where you just can't get your head around it? Well, look, I mean, we do have some resources in the portfolio, but we're um, just selective ones where I think the companies have a particular, um, they're particularly solid, but resources is terribly difficult because the number of diversified resources companies is extremely small, and even the traditional diversified ones like BHP and Rio, they're now you know two thirds or more iron ore, mm. and that's really pretty much a bet on China. Um, uh, so. You know, I'm, and resources, resources stocks when they go up, they're wonderful. I mean, they go up spectacularly, and, and you know, you feel it's almost un-Australian not to own a few of them, mm -hmm. uh, given the country was, you know, built on resources in all sorts of ways. But I find them terribly difficult, and if you don't get your timing right to the nearest month, you can completely miss the cycle. So we're, we just have a small amount in which is a bit of a an inflation hedge um, and a few companies where I think you know the pricing was good when we bought in and I'm I'm happy with them but I think I mean good luck to people I'm very happy for them if they can make money out of them consistently but I think it's terribly difficult and Frank you flagged that a lot of the market indicators are terribly distorted because of what's going on uh, in COVID and the time and demands have just been, you know, knocked all over the place, made, made sort of wobbly. How do you clearly differentiate between the long-term growth or prospects of the company? How do you normalise a company like, for instance, ARB is one that I think you've been keen on. Yeah. And, and obviously when everyone couldn't go overseas and travel, um, but, but they could, you know, attach a bull bar and a tow bar and... Yeah. Go, go inland. Um, it led to a huge um, uplift for them. How do you differentiate between, or how do you normalise that sort of company coming out of COVID? Well, that, I mean, that's the difficulty. I, it is extremely hard to do. But with a company like ARB, uh, they've had a really fantastic crack record. 
uh, of reinvesting and just gradually building the business. And if you look at their track record of dividend growth, you know, you couldn't ask for anything more consistent. And so with a company like that, you know, if I think it's gone way too expensive, I might reduce it a bit. But again, on a, a, on a five-year view, I st still expect them to be pretty good. And, you know, I, I have much more confidence in my five-year view than my two-year view. So therefore, it's the five-year view that dominates, mm -hmm. which means I'm going to stay in it even if I think it's overvalued and think I, unless I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But even then, I'm more likely just to, you know, modestly reduce the position because, uh, you know, these things can they can go higher than you expect. Um, and then, if you sell out and you mistime your sale and it keeps going up and you really like it long term, you know, you really get caught in a quandary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to time both a sale and a repurchase back, that requires two really good decisions, which I don't think I'm going to consistently make. So I tend to just stick with, stick with them as long as I think the five-year view remains strong. So does that mean you're still subscribing to what you've talked about in past podcasts is this lethargy bordering on sloth. Yep. Low, yeah. Low turnover in the portfolio still? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes with hindsight, uh, I wish I'd been more active, but then just as often with hindsight, I'm glad I wasn't more active because I, you know, I could have sold out of something and it succeeded even my high expectations. Are there many companies talking about that with hindsight? You know, are there many companies that you looked at, got very close to buying and wish you had of now and you just can't get into them? Um, not really. Because if I really like a company, I tend to buy a bit of it um, and then add to it as my confidence grows. That tends to be it. I mean, there is... There's, there's one biotech which I looked at quite closely, but I, I don't, I don't have the PhDs really necessary to do thorough due diligence on, and that's been an absolute cracker. Um, but there we are. You can't, you can't win them all. You can only try. Yeah. And still liking Macquarie Bank, I take it. Yeah. Um, what attracts you to Macquarie Bank? Well, in their case, uh, they're a very good example of one where it's the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not as if there aren't plenty of big investment banks around the world with bigger balance sheets and all the rest of it. And uh, I'm sure there are, you know, the average IQ at Goldman Sachs is, you know, probably as high, but that um, the Macquarie model of being very much bottom-up driven, whereby the business is found by the, well, the executive are, are directors and then they go back to the centre and say, give us some capital. And yep. at the centre they generally say, well, if you can find a good idea, we'll always find you the capital. Well, you just have to look at the reportable remuneration structure to see that the CEO is not the yeah. most highly remunerated individual. Yeah. In fact, there's, I think, numerous who earn more than the CEO and a whole lot of them that earned more than the CEO of uh, Commonwealth Bank, according yeah. to the last. No, no. And so, yeah, no, I think they're um, a remarkable institution. I, 
I don't think they have a peer um, globally in what they do and they've been consistently very successful. I mean, they are not immune to the cycle because mm-hmm. you know, a lot of their stuff is market-facing, but they, um, they are conservative enough that they always make it through. So that's the main thing. And, and in fact, they have uh, they've certainly consciously de-risked the business over the last sort of 15 years shifting to more and more annuity businesses versus things that are just dependent on market conditions. But that doesn't seem to have stopped them making a lot of money out of the right markets. Uh, US energy market in the last sort of couple of years being a prime example. Well, the business up there at Houston, I want to say, is a huge headcount that most people wouldn't necessarily recognise. Yeah. And, and Frank, what when you're talking to clients and talking about how you're thinking about stocks, what, what are some of the main concerns you're hearing from clients at the moment? Well, the main concerns are that people see the share price um, not going north. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I very much subscribe to the Buffett view that, you know, the share market is just there as a convenience for you so that you can buy on the day you choose and you can sell on the day you choose. The market is um, you know, a bit uh, mentally unbalanced. Sometimes it will eagerly sell you at a very low price. Sometimes it will you know, insist on a very high price and you've got to try and make use of the market rather than having the market tell you what the value of something is. Now, having said that, uh, it's not unknown for some bit of knowledge, whether it's about the economy or a given industry, for the market, for that to percolate through the market price before I have seen it. So, you know, you've got to, you can't be dismissive completely of the market message. Uh, And if if a share price is going south, you know, I tend not to get in the way of it. I'll just stand aside until I understand what it is. But it can be something like, you know, there's a particularly big holder who's lost a mandate and they're a forced seller. It can have nothing to do with the fundamentals of the business. Mm -hmm. So, um, but there are many occasions where the fundamentals of a business will be terrific but that doesn't get reflected in the share market for some years. So you've got to have a certain degree of being prepared to stick to your guns, but being open to the fact that maybe there's something out there you don't know. So you've got to be receptive. And if, um, I mean, it's a bit like uh, if you're playing bridge, you know, the fact that you lose a hand because all all the high cards were on your left and you kept on losing. You know, if that happens one hand, you uh, laugh it off. If it happens all night, you know, it's harder to laugh, but you still don't change your strategy. But if it happens night after night after night, then you've got to, you've, you've got to look at your strategy and say, well, maybe there's just something I've got wrong. Yes. And for me, that sort of period is whether on an individual basis an individual company or an overall strategy, sort of three years is, if I get to three years and a company just, it's, it's, not, it's not happening, 
then I've got to think, well, there must be something I'm missing. The know? thesis might be broken. Yeah. And we were talking just before we started recording that, of course, the track record of this strategy has been outstanding. If we looked at the outperformance, I think, since inception, which might be close to 14, 15 years, I want to say, it was something like 450% yeah. over that time, four times better than the market. You know, it just goes to show you the, the benefit of compounding returns um, and that you've actually got it right over a five-year period. What, what, so, but that seems to be the key question, isn't it, where people say, well, you know, we'll stay if the thesis isn't broken. What are some of those indicators now you've said one at the end of three years, if 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 the price in the market isn't starting to reflect what I think sanity is, what are the other sort of indicators that you're looking for, or little red flags to say, well, hold on, my my investment thesis might be broken here. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, part of it is going to be you'll have, you know, if I'm investing in a company because I think that bit of the economy is going to grow faster than the rest. Anything that affects that, which could be, you know, legislation could could change things or uh, consumer tastes. I mean, you know, lots of things have changed over COVID. I mean, clearly people's willingness to go to the office has changed a lot. So something, if I were investing in something particularly related to time spent in the office, you know, you'd clearly be, even if the share price was okay, you'd be thinking, hang on, mm -hmm. is this still an industry that I want to be in on a five, 10 year, 15 year basis? So you do, I mean, I look at the industry and I think about the industry as well as the companies. And um, if that changes, then I might, you know, I might change my view on the company before the share, I mean, hopefully, before the share price uh, is, is harmed too much. And Frank, they, they say talking about macroeconomics is just asking for trouble and in the short term, there's a lot of luck involved. But what are, what are the key bits of data you're looking for in the economy um, or things that are keeping you awake at night at the moment? Well, I mean, obviously, interest rates, just because if interest rates, particularly bond rates, keep going up uh, because of inflation fears, well then that, you know, that really does change everything and, and certainly uh, long-term growth companies are hurt more by um, rising bond rates than others. Uh, it still would not, I mean, I still would prefer to have a company that I can see a five year on a five to ten year view is going to do better, but I'd be I'd be uh, positioning myself for pain if if inflation scares get worse and if bond rates keep going up. So obviously inflation and and consequently bond rates they're a key thing. Then there is um, global growth and probably the the biggest. Um, fear for me at the moment is around China, where, you know, um, I've been thinking for, you know, for some year, many years, almost decades, when you look at what happened with Japan, where it grew extraordinarily fast for decades, mm -hmm. 
and people in the 80s were saying that Japan was going to overtake the US at some point because, you know, they invest for the long term. You know, they invest a lot in infrastructure, unlike, you know, America and the West. And we've been seeing the same thing with China. But really, China to me, you know, it looks very like Japan of the late 80s, except the demographics are a lot worse. So, and they're probably their debt levels are a lot higher. So I can see China, um, n not necessarily that it's suddenly going to have a, a massive uh, decline in the size of the economy, but the growth could flatten out from people who probably think in their minds the 5% they've predicted for this year, oh, that's a deliberately low one. I, I suspect that's going to turn out to be much higher than what they actually get over the next five to ten years. And if that's the case, there'll be a lot of people who are disappointed in their investment plans. So that that's a, a key one. Um, clearly, uh, you know, um, instability in US politics. Uh, Election coming up next year. Yeah, I mean... I don't know of anybody who's enthusiastic about a <laughs> Biden-Trump contest, um, uh, except perhaps the Democrats seem to think that's their best their best path for for winning. But I don't think anybody else is is particularly keen on that as a contest. And it's hard to believe that a country with so many smart people they're the best two candidates. That's, they're the best two candidates. It's a bit hard to believe. So that that those would probably be the two things in terms of geopolitics. Uh, I suppose there's always... Um, Putin doesn't seem to have many limits on what he would do if he thinks he can get away with it. So that's uh, that seems to be calming down a bit at the moment, but that could flare up at any, any time. And Frank, to sort of round out the conversation on a different sort of a note, have you been watching much or keeping track of uh, this artificial intelligence, chat GPT, uh, Google's got one, who is it, Google Baird, I think, out. Bard, yeah. Bard, uh, are you thinking about how that might impact Australian companies and the type of investments uh, you're looking at? Well, I certainly... Uh, I mean, it's like the same thing with a lot of technologies. I'd rather invest in the companies that could potentially take mm. advantage of it yep. than try and pick the winner in AI. In the technology, so investing uh, in but the... Given, given that Keep is an Australian, um, an Australian uh, mandate, uh, sadly I think it's unlikely the leading technology company is going to be uh, an Australian company. But There could uh, be a lot of beneficiaries. You oh, know, absolutely. In, insurers, banks... You Absolutely. Know, Commonwealth banks talking about, you know, deploying artificial intelligence through their apps, etc. Yeah. I mean, I suppose there'd have to be um, some risk of competition for, you know, say something like CSL mm -hmm. through AI, the development of new uh, either blood products or substitute for blood products that could easily be accelerated by by AI, but I think uh, CSL has shown itself to be pretty adept at in investing in 
uh, and not shy about investing highly, so I think they're probably just as likely to take advantage of it as anybody else. But, yeah, no, I think any business that's, um, that works on... Um, which has a lot of employees, for example, mm -hmm. you know, potentially, uh, you know, if somebody else can come in with a much smaller set of employees and do exactly the same job, um, is going to be vulnerable to that if they don't get there first. Frank, it's been a great conversation. I'll give you the last say. What should I, what should I have asked you that I haven't? Uh, I think you've covered most of the, the, the main things. Um, I suppose uh, the thing I always tell myself, and I think you've got to tell clients, is that uh, long-term investing does almost necessarily involve periods of underperformance, and while you can't be complacent about them, uh, which I certainly try not to be, they are part of the game, and if you want long-term outperformance, you've got to expect that occasionally you will depart from the index on the underside. Great place to finish it. Thanks for your time. Look forward to seeing you next time around, Frank. All right. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.